Um, We're reading today from Hebrews 3. um, And we're going to be reading uh, the whole thing. So, um, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Lindsay. Uh, we are, as I just I laugh every time um, in some ways because uh, reading the scriptures can be a difficult thing, particularly when you're studying what I would argue is one of the most challenging uh, books to read in the New Testament to understand. And so thank you, Lindsay, for reading that to us today. Uh, many of us are probably listening going, what in the world is happening here? And so that's why I love the opportunity that I have to explain to us, help us understand a little bit of what's going on here in Hebrews 3, uh, which is amazing because we have now had two weeks already. Today will be our third week in Hebrews. Uh, And so I just encourage you to buckle up because we're going to have a lot of fun as we've been having over the last uh, couple of weeks. Well, I want want to do a little bit of a a challenge to you uh, upon introduction today, and that is to begin to think about the way that you live your life. Now, some of you would say, okay, I fashion my life after this person. And others of you would say, no, I fashion my life after this person. But the challenge of all of us is, why do you live the way that you do? And to answer that question, you, you might say, well, I live the way that I do based upon the things that I believe. Right? So if I believe something, I'm going to live a certain way. It's, it's why many of us, if I were to ask you the question, how do you tell what somebody believes? You'd say, well, you could know that through what they say or... More so by watching how they live, 
right? And many of us understand this and know this, that the best way to understand likely what somebody believes is to watch how they actually live. Now, the problem with that is that many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, live in, live in ways that we would say are not in line with what we believe. Now, some of you would be like, well, hold on there. What do you mean? Well, so some of us might say we care a lot about the environment, right? Uh, which is a wonderful thing to believe in, that care for the environment is important. Okay, so we ask the question, what are you doing in your life that cares for the environment? Right? Some of us might say, if we're to get a little bit uh, spiritual, uh, I believe that prayer is important. Excellent. How often are you spending time both praying alone or with other people. Some of us might even say, I believe church, is a church and being part of a church family is important. Okay. Uh, how much of your week, your week are you with your church family? Uh, some of us might say, um, for me, what really, really matters is uh, treating people, humanity, across the scale, across the globe, fairly. Right? I believe that people being treated fairly is really, really important. I think we would all say, yeah, like, I think everyone would get in line on that way, hopefully. But then we ask the question, in which ways are you living that shows the world that you care about the equal and fair treatment of every individual? Uh, and one thing that we could do is to go and look at the consumer goods that we take in. Where are these things made? And what you realize is as you start, as you begin, as what I'm doing here, and some of you are like, leave me alone, I don't want to focus on that. But what you begin to realize is that many of us are walking contradictions, that many of us are hypocrites, that many of us claim certain things, yet when it comes down to actually how we live our lives, it's out of line with what we say that we believe. Now, a year and a half ago, I also found out about this other fascinating concept, and it's called moral licensing. And I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast in which he said, human beings, they will give themselves freedom to do things that they would otherwise not agree with because they've morally licensed themselves to do something. So let me explain to you. And he was using the concept of racism as he was thinking about the United States. And he was thinking along the lines of, if somebody were to say, I am not racist, um, they might say, I'm not racist because for them, morally, they voted for Barack Obama. And so they would say, I'm not racist because I voted for Barack Obama. Yet there might be aspects of systemic racism in their life or thinking negative things about people of a different color. And when he was expressing this from the perspective of a political environment, I was like, that is what happens in the Christian life too. Right? When we say, okay, I totally believe that it is important for me to... Um, read the Bible, right? So I'm going to read the Bible on Mondays. And so you read the scriptures on Mondays, but you don't read it the rest of the week, but you say, I, I believe that reading the Bible is important. Or you say, I believe that, that men and women should be treated fairly. And so you can think of a time when you genuinely treated a woman fairly, but then in the privacy of your own home, you went online and you looked at images that is not the fair treatment of women. What gave you license to do that? And you might say, well, I believe in the fair treatment of women. Morally, you maybe gave yourself license because you particularly gave yourself the freedom at one particular state to say, I believe that this is good, and you make a right action, but then 
it allows you to, on the other side of things, to do something completely terrible. Now, many of us here are, are sitting, and we are, like, taking this in, and we're like, whoa, this is reflective. And this is the business of self-reflection. This is the business of Jesus. Because Jesus just doesn't want your actions. He wants your heart. Right? It's not enough if you just kind of change your behavior. He wants your motives. And you get your motives when you get your heart. And Hebrews 3 is all about the heart. Now, as we've discussed over the last few weeks, we've seen here that uh, what Hebrews is, is a pastor writing to a group of people, or it actually comes off a bit more of like a sermon, and he's sharing why you should stay committed to Jesus when you're under fire. Or when you're going through persecution. In many ways, uh, it's not totally dissimilar. I mean, we are under different levels of persecution or marginalization here in the West. Uh, This was physical persecution. uh, And it was very, very different than what we are here. But the challenge is still the same. To stay committed to Jesus. We still need to stay committed to Jesus. And so the author is saying, why should you stay committed to Jesus despite the environment that you're in and despite the heart that you have that we're going to see today is deceitful? Like, why should you stay committed to Jesus? And in chapter 1, he says, you should stay committed to Jesus because Jesus is God. Like, we go through, and you can go back and listen to the message, Jesus is God. And then in chapter 2, he says, Jesus is superior to the angels. And as I said last week, it's not like many of us woke up likely last Sunday morning and said, I think angels are superior to Jesus. But he wants us to understand that that's what was going on in the culture and context. And there are many of us that struggle when it relates to something being superior to Jesus in our lives. And so what the author wants to say is Jesus is worthy of being superior because he is God. And because he is who he says he is. And he tasted death for all of us. That was the main crux of last week's message. And so here in chapter 3, our author is continuing, our orator is continuing to say, stay committed to Jesus. Well, why must we stay committed to Jesus? Well, let's see why we must consider this Jesus and why we must stay committed. And part of it is going to be connected to my introduction related to the things that we believe. So he begins in verse 1. Therefore, now anytime you see the word therefore in the scriptures, you've got to understand that he's building upon what he said previously. And I just described that to you, what came previously. Jesus is God. Jesus tasted death for everyone. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Now, our author is immediately pointing out a specific group of people, holy brothers. We also know this can mean sisters. You who share in a heavenly calling. Those people, this is very specific, he's saying those people that have committed themselves to faith in Jesus Christ. Those people that are now part of the family of God, who can now call themselves brothers and sisters. You that have been set apart, you that are holy, you that are different because of what Christ has given you as your high priest. And you who share in a heavenly calling, understanding that one day we will spend eternity with Jesus because he will return. So he's saying, therefore you, you people, this group, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. A couple of comments on the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle is known as the sent one. So immediately our author is saying is, consider Jesus the sent one. 
It says, then the high priest, as we discussed last week, that there was always the requirement of a mediator between man and God because God is holy. Human beings are not because of their sin, and so we need a mediator. And so we're going to jump even more into it next week. But what the orator is saying, consider Jesus rightly, who is your sent one, the sent one from God, and also the high priest, your mediator between yourself, a broken people, and a perfect and holy God. Now, I think the application here is quite obvious in our culture, in our time, and sitting us with us here today. It's to consider Jesus as it relates to what you believe. Have you considered Jesus? Do you believe Jesus is worth considering? Do you believe Jesus is worth meditating on? Do you believe that the person of Jesus is worth having a discussion about? Do you believe that Jesus is worth your time, energy, and focus? Do you believe that Jesus is worth going up against your hypocrisy, challenging it, and leading you into a new direction? Do you believe that Jesus does, in fact, set forward for us the best example of what it means to be human? Do you consider that Jesus is the best example, if you are a man, of what it truly means to be a man? Do you consider Jesus? So immediately, verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest. So what must we do if we're going to have our beliefs changed? Consider Jesus. We exist to make Jesus known. If you're a follower of Jesus, we want the world to know Jesus. We want the world to consider Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're skeptical towards Christianity. And you're particularly, you might be skeptical because of Christians. Hear me. Consider Jesus. Do not consider Christians. Do not let the baby go out with the bathwater. Because one day you will still stand before a holy, perfect God who will ask you, did you consider Jesus? So we must consider Jesus. This past week, I, I took in a conversation that Sam Harris, a uh, well-known atheist uh, philosopher, was having with a guy by the name of Ben Shapiro and another guy by the name of Eric Weinstein. And uh, Sam Harris's worldview is, is that of a secularist, particularly related to reason. His belief is that if only we were to have more reason and use more reason in our world, we would be fine. Uh, ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jewish person. Uh, who believes in a theistic version of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Eric wasn't really giving his indication, although with the last name Weinstein, you have to imagine he has a background in, in a, of a Jewish connection. And what was amazing of all, all of these three people as they were having this conversation was that none of them were considering Jesus. And what we understand in the Christian faith, the Protestant Christian view, the evangelical Christian view, is that Jesus is God coming to earth to help us understand who God is. So in order for us to have helpful conversation with one another from a Christian perspective, is we have to consider Jesus. We have to look at who the person of Jesus is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, he's worth considering. So consider Jesus. Wonderful thing to do. Verse 2. Who, that is Jesus, was faithful to him... His father God who appointed him, Jesus, the son, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. 
For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now in these verses, we're now being introduced to another character, and it's the character of Moses. Now in the first two chapters, uh, the context of the situation was people were believing that angels were superior to Jesus. In this verse, we're being introduced to the fact that people felt Moses was superior to Jesus. And he's already made a connection in that Moses was seen as the sent one. Moses was the first priest. And so what we have here is the people being introduced to the fact that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, we see this all in a bit of some understanding when we look at the Pharisees, right? Now, you might be like, what do you mean the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees believed that Moses was greater than Jesus, right? Because they trusted in the Mosaic law, in the Torah. And they had issue with Jesus because he was calling into question Moses. So here in the text, our orator Our pastor, who's giving this sermon to us, is saying, Jesus is greater than Moses. It's not that Moses is bad, it's just Jesus is greater than him. It's not that the Torah, the Old Testament is bad. No, it's good. It points to Jesus. This is really helpful. This is important for us to understand. And one of the first images that he provides is the house. He's saying, so Moses is the house. But who's Jesus? Jesus is the builder of the house. So who's greater than the house itself? The builder of the house. So it's okay to focus on the house, but don't take your focus completely, uh, solely on the house. Put your focus on the builder of the house that is Jesus. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Really important word, servant. To testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So, who is Moses? Moses is the servant. In this instance, uh, this is actually the Greek word, and I don't anticipate you know this, but I just want you to know because it's a helpful detail. From the Greek word therapon, which was someone who held a position of nobility under the authority of the one who appointed him. Really important. Moses is the servant. Jesus is the son. He's the heir of the house. He's just not a servant in the household. He is the one who inherits the household and functions as the household's Lord. So he's saying, Moses, firstly, is only the house. He's not the builder of the house. And Moses is simply a servant. Moses Moses is not the son. Now, what, what do we do with this? Here's what I think we do with this is we apply this to say is that Jesus is greater, period. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, you can write this down in your notes. Jesus is greater than, and then write a blank as a line, and then put a period. And fill that in for yourself. Now, for you today, if you're honest... That might be like something we talked about the last week of Jesus being superior over. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. But I want you to think specifically of a person. Because here is the temptation in our culture, and we see it everywhere, to idolize people. To celebrate, where does celebrity come from? The word celebrate, people. And we begin to believe that they are greater than Jesus. Uh, last night I was watching the movie Spotlight, uh, and it's a, it's a story that, that tells uh, the events that uh, took place in Boston. 
uh, around the sexual abuse cases and the Catholic Church's cover-up of these sexual abuse cases. And in some of the interviews that were happening with the victims, the victims um, said that, you know, this priest would show interest in us, which for us was like God was showing interest in us. How and in which way and who have you elevated so they have more say in your life than God does? Than Jesus does. You know, I think of this in particular in our church communities that we can elevate our, our pastors. Uh, I think uh, in, in so many good ways we have come to a place with, with a little bit more sobriety related to our pastors. I think there was an elevation in generations past of pastoral staff in particular. But I would still say there is that temptation. And I think one of the greatest temptations and one of the ways that you can test it is let's say the elders decided tomorrow or over like the span of a month that I was unfit to be uh, the pastor of teaching and vision with Church of the City any longer. Would you trust the elders a group of individuals who have been appointed by God to serve our church community? Or would you be mad at them because you like me? Now, if, if you wrestle with that, I think, it's, I think it's a natural wrestle. But I would say the important thing to note is, is do not elevate me. Do not elevate James. Do not elevate Spencer. Do not elevate a pastor that maybe you listen to their podcast regularly. Like, if I'm honest, I listen to everything Tim Keller says. But there's a problem there. As bright as he is, there's a problem there. I remember hearing somebody say that if you ever uh, are following somebody or if you ever want to model your life after somebody, if you've been unable to recognize any broken trait or fallen reality about their life, you've idolized them. If you can never identify something that's wrong with them, and not like a pointing finger start away, like, ha, look at you and that. But if you don't recognize the temptation of humanity within a human being, you're treating them greater than Jesus. And so right out of the gate, we must consider Jesus. And why we must consider Jesus is because if we stop considering Jesus, we'll let other things that we consider take the place of Jesus. So consider Jesus. Connected to this, don't ever believe that your pastoral staff's kids should be the best behaved kids in a church community. Amen. Amen. I grew up, my dad entered into pastoral work when I was in high school. And who became the kids that everybody called to go and do their yard work? Us. And I could never say no. Because I had to be the good guy with, under my dad. We as your pastoral staff are servants in the house alongside of you. We are not the sons or heirs. We are not the house itself. We are not the builders of the house. Christ builds his church. We do not. So please leave our kids alone. <laughs> 6B. <laughs> and we are his house. Fascinating. Who's the household of God? We are. No building. We are his house. So what does this also mean? We need to interact and relate to one another as if we're a household. 
brothers and sisters, doing life together, the people of God, the church, the ones whom Jesus purchased by the shedding of his blood. It's beautiful. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now the second part of this verse speaks to what has become a theological term of the perseverance of the saints. What do you mean if one holds to their confidence and their boasting? What does it mean? Like, can you lose your salvation? That's another particular verse here. And I really appreciate there's so much that we could go into here, but we're not going to go down that rabbit hole this morning. But I really appreciate what, what, what Albert Moeller in his Christ-centered exposition commentary writes about this particular doctrine. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean we enter God's kingdom by faith and stay in God's kingdom by works. Instead, it means we enter God's kingdom by faith that will persevere and never fail. There is a distinction within Christian theology around how is someone saved? Well, they're saved by faith through God's grace. And the second part of this verse, maybe if you haven't noticed it, it says, if indeed we hold our confidence in boasting. So there seems to be a contradiction there that, well, do we need to hold our confidence in our boasting? Is that what keeps us in the kingdom of God? Is it our works that keep us in? And what I believe the scriptures teach is that no, it's by grace that we're saved through our faith. But, as Moeller points out here, it's going to be the measure of how our faith is actually seen in that true faith is exemplified in what we believe and how we live. So that if you have said that I have been changed by God's grace and I believe through faith, then your life will be a testimony to that but it's not the very thing that saves you. Instead, it means we enter God's kingdom by faith that will persevere and never fail. Let's continue, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now this is really interesting, small detail, love to point it out though, is that what our author is going to do here is he's going to quote Psalm 95, but he's very clear about who these words came from. Not just simply a human being. These words came from the Holy Spirit, which is a, another part of Christian theology that the Holy Scripture is an inspired word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now our author is quoting Psalm 95, which is a retelling of the Exodus story. Particularly at this point, it's a retelling of the children of Israel rebelling in the wilderness. So the author is saying, a bit of a side point, is that the lesson and testimony of history ought to inform our present circumstances. Let's learn from the rebellion of the past so that we don't rebel in the present. Now in verses 12 to 19, he's going to go on and he's going to apply the past testimony. So he's using this as an example or as an illustration, as I have already done today, and now he's going to apply it. So he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
Now, I believe that this order chooses his words very carefully. And so when he says, take care, he's combining it with the today that is in the earlier verses from Psalm 95. So he's saying that there's urgency in this application. Secondly, he says, be careful of an evil or unbelieving heart. He connects to earlier, which is don't harden your hearts, which is the reason for our rebellion. And then the consequence is in both the earlier illustration and now in these verses, that what does this evil, unbelieving heart lead you to? It leads you to fall away from the living God, one consequence, and therefore they shall not enter God's rest. What's the lesson here? Let's sum it up. Do not harden your hearts and turn away from God as your ancestors have done. Learn from history. Do not harden your hearts. So what's the application? Because some of us are like, what are you trying to say? (laughs) Spiritual battle is won and lost in the heart. And you can see that right there in verse 12. Now, as I said in my introduction, this is really fascinating because the author doesn't say, he doesn't say, beware of the way that you act. He says, beware of an unbelieving heart that will lead you astray. I think this is exactly what Jesus was getting at in Luke 6, verse 45. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So everything that we do will be informed by what we think that then informs our hearts. So I ask the question, how is your heart? Now you might be saying, well, my heart's pretty good. You know, I've I've been doing good cardio recently. You're skipping the question. How is your heart? And some of the ways that the scriptures helps us understand the condition of our hearts, and particularly in this verse, is number one, is our response to trials, or our response to marginalization, or our response to pressure. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this, Trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. So how do you respond to trials in your faith? Or how do we know the condition of our heart? How about our attitude? You know, one of the things that was the regular reality of the attitude of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness was that they were constantly complaining. Are you a complainer? Are you slandering? Are you gossiping? Are you complaining about your condition and maybe, the, maybe your lack of content and contentment with where God has you in life? It's a way to check the condition of your heart. Or how about your words? How do you speak? Uh, James 3, verse 5 to 6, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Like, how do we speak? He uses the example that the way we speak is like the rudder of a ship. It guides our whole lives. And then the fruit of the Spirit. What is the presence of the Spirit in your life leading to love, leading to joy, leading to peace? leading to patience, leading to kindness and self-control. This is where the rubber meets the road of what we believe. 
Because out of the heart, our mouth speaks. How is your heart? Now the transition in verse 13 is how do we actually fight this battle in our hearts? And this is how. And and I tried to find a, a workaround for the words every day, and I'll explain in a minute. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So number one, how do we fight the battle in our hearts? We exhort one another daily. Now exhort is the Greek word parakleo, which means to come alongside, to call out. Therefore, let's watch the argument. We, the household, need to call out and come alongside one another every day or we're to fall into evil and unbelieving hearts. Now, the workaround I tried to find was the every day. Maybe he means once a week. Maybe he means periodically. He didn't say that. He said, exhort, call one and out Every single day. This is one of the great joys of living in a family. And uh, if you're a married person, hopefully your spouse is doing that in your life. If you're a single person, hopefully you've found people in your life that can call you out daily. Maybe you should move in with another group of people and ask them to call you out or involve yourself in the life of others so that they can call you out. We do that in the context of missional communities here, but even missional communities, even if you're like, missional community feels like it's running on all cylinders and that we have our family aspect of that we have dinner once, once a week together or our DNA aspect and that we're disciple aspect and that we're meeting once a week as well for Bible study. It still doesn't meet the exhort one another daily. Call one another out daily. Come alongside each other daily. Now you might say, now that sounds a little bit intense. Why would I need this daily? And he answers the question that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What he means is that you and I will be hardened by sin and sin is deceitful, meaning it lies and it's not always obvious. (laughs) And also our hearts are so willing to be deceived. You know, rarely do I talk to people who are uh, confessing their sin and uh, there never come up the part where they began to believe a lie about God or they didn't realize that the sin itself was deceitful. Like we sort of have like this, this uh, I would use the analogy of like a dog on the leash about sin and that like, oh, I'm just going to go for a nice walk with my dog and it's like on this leash and it's okay if, as long as I let it like stay within the bounds of where I want it to, Right? What he's saying is here, like, that's believing a lie to begin with. Sin is a pit bull off its leash, and you're trying to control it. It's not going to work that way. Now, we can look at the big examples, right? Like, if someone decides, a man or woman, to leave their family, to go and start a relationship with somebody else that they've already begun a relationship with, so an extramarital affair... And they like totally are like, I think this is good for me because this person's making me more happy. You're like, are you crazy? That's a lie. They'll make you happy tomorrow, but eventually you're going to grow uh, away from this person like you did your current person. And we look at that example and we're like, wow, sin's really deceitful. Yeah, sin's always deceitful. The lie is to believe that it's not. 
So what do we do about it? Exhort, call one and out, call one another out daily. In Peter, 1 Peter, he says that, that Satan is like a prowling lion going around looking for people to devour. It's intense. It's serious. So he challenges us. Exhort one another because if you don't put people in your life on a regular basis, on a daily basis, who will call you out, you will be deceived time and time again. It's deceitful. It lies. For we have come to share in Christ, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what's the second thing that he says? How do we fight the battle in our hearts? Verse 15, listen to Jesus' voice. Believing and trusting Jesus is interconnected with hearing his voice. Throughout the teachings of Jesus, he says, if you have ears to hear, Jesus also says that his sheep are the ones that hear his voice. So how are you doing at listening to Jesus' voice? Because this is another way that we fight in our lives. This is another one of the ways that we do battle in our hearts as we, as we call people around us. We also ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts that we might have clear eyes to see our rebellion, that we would see sin as it's deceitful and how bad it is and how it's lying to us and so that we would instead see the truth of what it is. So the second question is you are exhorting one another daily are you also surrounding yourself with people who are encouraging you to listen to Jesus' voice? Or are they encouraging you to listen to more Tim Keller? Or are they encouraging you to listen to more Hillsong? Or are they encouraging you to, you get the idea. We must listen to Jesus' voice. And then we must have our community of a people that are with us on a daily basis who can call us out to make sure that we're walking in line with Jesus. So the question at the beginning was, how do you persevere? under trial. Exhort one another daily. Listen to Jesus' voice. Well, why? Verse 16 to 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So that we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. What our order wants us to understand is that belief has consequences. Belief has consequences. What you say of God, what you say of Jesus, what you say of the environment, what you say of all these things, it matters. And those beliefs have consequences. The Christian story is that if you do not believe in the salvation through Jesus Christ, then you will not be under his mercy when Jesus returns. And you will either be under God the Father's wrath towards injustice, or you will find yourself under the mercy of Jesus Christ. What you believe on this side of that matters. And your type of faith matters. 
Do you believe that Jesus is all that he says that he is? How about this? That Jesus is the bread of life. He truly satisfies. Do you believe that? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What do you want? Is the Lord enough? I want to save myself. I want to earn my salvation. So functionally, I don't believe that Jesus truly saves me. I must save myself. Our beliefs have consequences. So we must ask the questions. Number one, who or what do you believe? Who or what do you believe? You know, in the battle of self-image, it is so easy to believe the lies that culture tells us. That we are worthless, or we are ugly, or we are not of what culture defines as beautiful. Consider what Jesus says of you, that you are beautiful. That you are like a bride before the groom on his wedding day. You are worthy. So who are you listening, or who are you believing, or what lies are you believing? What is the condition of your heart? I express, express some ways to find out the condition of your heart. And have you surrounded yourself with people who can exhort you daily? Do you live in a marriage relationship in which you've asked for assertiveness? Assertiveness is the ability to express what you need to say. When I'm doing premarital counseling with couples on the session on communication, we talk about assertiveness and then active listening. And I lead them through an exercise where I say, okay, I want you to write down three things that you want more of in your relationship. And then you who's listening, I want you to listen to those things and then repeat back to them what they said to you. It's amazing how bad the listeners do. And sometimes how the actual people speaking what they want. I was kind of thinking that uh, you could maybe uh, uh, want to spend more time with me. Just tell them you want them to spend more time with you. Don't make it difficult. And then how would that make you feel? It would make you feel like you, you cared about me more. Okay. What did they say? Oh, uh, you just wish I would spend more time, that I'd stop playing video games as much. <laughs> no, stop. What did they actually say? We need to be assertive with one another. We need to be able to tell each other what we need to, be, what we need to hear. And we need to be people that have hearts that are listening to Jesus and that are humble in the receiving. You know, I've, as I've said before, one of the greatest apologetics against the Christian faith can be Christians themselves. Right? I don't want anything to do with you because you tell me that Jesus is going to change people's lives and I see you're Christians. This is one of the things that Gandhi had issues with of, of Christ. I see your Christ, but I, I've also seen your Christians, and they're nothing like your Christ. What are you believing? Because it starts at the place of the heart. It starts at the place of belief. Do you believe Jesus is enough for you? Do you believe that he is ultimately the bread that can satisfy? Do you believe that you can come to him that when you are thirsty, he will quench your thirst? Do you believe that his ways are truly the best ways? Do you believe that he is the king and that he's worthy to be the king? Do you believe that he gets the first word in your life 
Or is there something else that takes the first word in your life? Who or in what are you believing? My prayer is that we would be a people that submits to Jesus and that submits our beliefs at the foot of Jesus and at the cross. And say, change my beliefs so that my way that I live might be changed as well. So if you've never responded to Jesus, if you've never trusted the gospel, I would invite you to respond to the good news of Jesus, that God is redeeming and restoring humanity, and he's doing that through Jesus Christ. And he wants to redeem and restore your life through Jesus. That when Jesus died on the cross, he took every one of your sins, every one of your hypocritical things, your walking contradiction, and he nailed it to the cross so that you would have new life. You will never do enough to get yourself out of your hypocritical situation. And this is the point of it. Your heart needs to be changed. You need a new heart. And that happens when we receive Jesus' life, his life in our place that we can live forever. So respond, consider, believe Jesus. I would invite you this morning that if you want to respond as we turn to sing, that you would come to the front People that are now marked, our prayer people are now marked. They have white lanyards. They would love to pray with you. I'm sure there's others in the front row that will pray with you as well, but the ones with the lanyards are the particular ones that will pray with you, um, and they won't be surprised when you ask. But let's respond. Who or what are you believing? Where do you need to submit? Confess that to the Lord. He knows it all anyways. And allow his love and allow his voice to speak clearly to your mind and to your heart today as he changes it forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Hebrews 3. I thank you so much for Hebrews 1 and 2, which sets up 3. And God, I pray if there's any of us in this room today that are not considering Jesus, that we would stop in this moment, that we would consider Jesus, and that you, Holy Spirit, would change our lives, that you would change our hearts, that we would truly see you as the apostle, the sent one, as the high priest who mediates between ourselves and a perfect and holy God, makes a way for us to be in your presence. I pray that we would examine our hearts, that we would take a good hard look at the condition of our hearts, and that we would ask you to change them. God, if if we leave today and sort of muster up some courage to say, I'm going to do better, then we haven't heard the gospel. God, that you have been better, that you are greater. You're greater than anyone that we look up to, but you're certainly greater than ourselves, than us as well. So Jesus, be greater. And may we worship you for being great in your greatness. And may we submit ourselves to you in everything. God, we love you. I pray that we would come around each other, that we would exhort each other every day. Lord, so that we might not walk into this deceitfulness that is sin. We pray these things in your name. Amen.